Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. In today's show, we get to begin a new book. We're going to look at the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, as it's sometimes called. And this is this, this is going to be a difficult book. Remembering really the purpose of the show that I'm, I'm hoping to help equip parents to teach their children about Scripture this is a, this is a difficult book for that in one way, but not so much in another. It's difficult because of the topic nature. Uh, this is a very sexual book, but at the same time, it's going to be easy because it the text points to Christ so clearly as the New Testament so regularly describes us as the church being the bride of Christ, that relationship is going to be picked up on in this book again and again and again. So difficult and easy. And as a parent listening in, I'm giving you, I'm hoping to equip you with the knowledge and the understanding of this book so that you can then turn to your children and teach them in ways that you feel are good and helpful um, you know, you're going to teach this book to a 16-year-old differently than you're going to teach it to a 2-year-old. And while that's fair for m- pretty much all of Scripture, it really jumps out with this particular nature of this book. This is written by King Solomon. He reigned somewhere between the years of 970 and 931 B.C., It is essentially a love letter between the king and, unfortunately, one of his brides, uh, the Shulamite woman. Although, that perspective actually translates pretty well to us as we think of ourselves so much individually in the American mind, as we think of Christ and his bride, the church, scriptures actually teach us to think communally in that way. Uh, Original sin is like that as a concept as well. But as Americans, we are taught to think so much so as an individual on our own. I have to do this my way. I have to stand up for myself. All those kinds of ideas. This actually plays quite well to that in the mindset that this is one of the brides of the king. So I'm not going to spend any more time on that particular emphasis, but... As you read through this book, keep those two things side by side, the relationship of a husband and a wife and the relationship of Christ and his bride, the church, which is us. So husband and wife, Christ and us. That's the twofold picture here. And as I'm really working through this on my own, I'm going to be putting notes on my my, my handout here. I'm going to put notes about husband and wife on the left side of the text and on the right side I'm going to be writing notes about Christ and the church so I can kind of keep it straight in my own head. Um, Beautiful pictures of this can be found in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Ephesians 5, uh, somewhere around verse 23 I believe, where we learn this picture, this metaphor that we're being taught that Christ is the groom and we as the church are his bride. Uh, and very specifically being drawn to drawn to see that picture. Marriage is, is really the first 
perhaps the only, arguably, relationship that God has ordained in his creation. He instituted himself in the Garden of Eden when things were still perfect. Husband and wife to care for one another, to have children, to care for their children, and to care for the creation around them. So, this is a big deal. And this entire book is going to give you the opportunity again and again to sit down and have good, solid, strong conversations about what marriage is supposed to be, what God intended for marriage. And as you have a young child who's growing up, as a parent, it's our job to teach them to honor and respect God's intention for marriage and to really see it as the gift that it is. And so we're going to try to talk about that through the week two weeks or so that come as we cover this book. Just a couple of notes. Uh, the study Bible, Lutheran study Bible, was helpful in, in some of the prep for this. They describe the outline of this book as kind of being uh, six repeating cycles. And in those cycles, you're going to be seeing four themes. So there's the theme of the longing anticipation of courtship. As we think about being Christians, waiting for Christ our Savior to return, you might say that we're we're still in that courtship. We're still waiting to be taken up by our groom. You could make the argument that that's before faith. We'll see how that plays out as we're studying through. The second theme is the excitement and splendor of the wedding ceremony. You could connect that to the actual act of baptism, which we're going to do with this first paragraph of the text. You could connect that really to the, the last day and the judgment as we are finally brought into God's house, his kingdom forevermore. But that is a little closer to the third theme, which is the bliss of the couple's marriage consummation. Which, again, this is why it's hard to unpack this book with our children. But useful and very beneficial things going to be in this book. The fourth and final theme, the infatuation and delight of married love. Um, this is going to be paradise. This is a picture, in some ways, of what it will be like to live with our king forever. So, very metaphoric language in that regard. We are the bride of Christ, and yet we don't want to push that language too far. Obviously, a lot of men, for good reason, would have struggled pushing that language too far. But it is scriptural language, and it is in this book, definitely. So, we want to use it. We want to see what it has to teach us about marriage and what it has to teach us about what God is giving to us in the in the time to come. The study Bible also made the note that this is one of the most taught books in both the ancient and medieval times. I thought that was an interesting note worth sharing. All right, we're going to jump into the text. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. 
We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. This is the word of the Lord. So hopefully as you have a Bible in your home, you have one that subtitles this pretty well for you, um, indicating who is speaking and when, um, because the text itself can sometimes look a little confusing in that regard. So that can be a helpful Bible tool to have. The study Bible, for example, does that, um, indicating where she is speaking, where he is speaking, and then where this third party of others are speaking. And I'll... I'll try as I read the text the next several days here to to just leave a pause in those moments in between as it shifts from one speaker to another. In our first paragraph, the first speaking that the woman gives, Luther wrote that God kisses and embraces his dear bride with his word, which is the kiss of his lips. I thought that was an interesting phrase. God is giving to us his word as a wonderful gift, uh, just like a, a spouse kissing their spouse is such a wonderful, wonderful way to express their love to one another. So God is expressing his love by pointing us to his son through holy word. That's beneficial. As we look at the, the kind of the husband-wife side of this first paragraph, in a good marriage, the love of your spouse is better than wine. When marriage is going well as God has designed it to go, that is a true statement. Um, we see anointing again in this text. We've seen, we saw it in the last book a lot when we studied 1 Samuel. Now we have it here. Anointing was pouring oil on the head of someone in order to make them, set them apart into a special role of prophet, priest, or king. That's going to have a really interesting picture for us as we move into the other side here of Christ and his church, that Christ is anointing his bride. Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, is anointing us. Question to ask your children here, when is God's name 
put on you. Your name is oil poured out. So poured out on what? Poured out on the beloved. So when was Christ's name poured out on you? And that happens in the time of your baptism when God brings you into his royal family. And this is what we see in that last phrase. The king has brought me into his chambers. We are the bride of Christ. We have been brought into his family. We have been united with him in our baptisms. That's Romans 6 language. Um, as Paul talks about us being buried with Christ in baptism. Also united with him then in our in his resurrection, our resurrection. That line on the husband-wife side, it's the consummation of the marriage. The king brings her into his, his chambers. She becomes his wife. She becomes queen. The church re rejoices. That's the next little section. The others speaking in verse 4 still the church rejoices to be a part of this, thanks to Christ's work for us. The woman speaks again in that next section, and this is a slightly difficult one, in that she's calling herself essentially scorched. Um, she has been abused by her mother's sons, not calling them brothers. She has been mistreated by them, not allowed to do her own thing, instead forced to work for them, and it has left her skin scarred. We don't want to make this a black or white issue. Um, really, that's not much of a scriptural picture at all. Instead, what we're seeing here is someone who has spent so much time in the sun, regardless of what her skin color was when she started, her skin has been roasted. It has been burned again and again and again. But as she speaks to this audience, the daughters of Jerusalem, so the people around her, she tells them not to look at her because her skin has been destroyed, but instead to look at her as lovely because the king looks at her as lovely. And this translates to our faith so wondrously. Our bridegroom loves us, even though we are marred by our sin, scarred by the, the thoughts and words and deeds of our wicked heart. And yet our Lord, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, when he looks upon us, he loves us. He sees us as beautiful, which we're going to see as the text continues to move on here. Beautiful parallel for us. And her, her words that she concludes with in verse 6 refer really to the exile of God's people. So she has been working in a land that is not her own, but belongs to another. This happened frequently to God's people. And really, when you consider it, there is a connection here to the idea of paradise. This land that we are working right now, as we're told in the New Testament in several places, like Peter saying that we're exiles, we're sojourners in another land. We see that here. The work that we do here, what we care for, what, what our bodies are beaten up over, is for the good of another. It's for the good of our neighbor. We look forward to the day when together with our neighbor as the church, we are in Christ's paradise. And instead of working for someone else, we are working for our groom, together with our groom, 
and there's some of that. There's a, a, a bit of that in our life now as we love our neighbors and we are doing this on behalf of our groom. It is the family business to love one another as he has first loved us. Her last verse of that part of the speech, verse 7, she wants to be with her beloved. She doesn't want to be off with the other workers. She wants to be with her groom. And so we want to be in Christ's presence. A question we can ask our kids here. Where has God promised to be? Where has God promised that you will find him? The answer to that really ends up being word and sacrament. He has promised that you will hear him in his word. He has promised that you will receive his, his Holy Spirit in baptism. He has promised that you will receive his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. And those things are then found in the church. Not necessarily the physical building, although that's the way we've structured ourselves. But those are the marks of what a church is. A church is when... The community has the right preaching of God's word and the proper administration of the sacraments, the gifts of forgiveness given by God to us. So we, as God's people, we want to be in his presence. We want to be where word and sacrament are because that's where God has promised to be. And he has promised to work for us. Then Solomon speaks, then the groom speaks here. And the whole section that he speaks is really summed up by the words, oh, most beautiful among women. And this is, again, the same parallel from what she had said before. Christ does not see us in our marred state, destroyed by sin. Christ sees us as the perfect one that he has restored us to be, even though that's a now and not yet. He's already working it, but it's not completed yet, and we wait for the resurrection for that to be truly, fully done. But even now, Christ sees his bride as beautiful, and that is such a wonderful gift that he gives to us. As we skip down to the next speech that the woman gives, verses 12 through 14, we get this picture of the different fragrances that would have been used in ancient weddings. Um, just a, a heightening of the senses. This is a very sensory book in many ways. As we look to the, the husband, the groom's speech in 15, one of the questions we can ask our children about is this word dove. He compares her eyes to being like doves. Where else do we see doves in scripture? That could be a fun way to, to look at. So we, we can first things that come to my mind are, are the dove that is released from the ark to know that it is it is good to to park to well to, to leave the ark to get off of it and to resume living life um, we also have the picture of the holy spirit in the new testament and the baptism of jesus uh, appearing as or like a dove so some common scriptural themes that we can bring out we can connect to elsewhere in scripture with our children is good to do and then lastly, uh, the woman's speech in verses 16 and 17 here. The couch being green could be a reference to fertility, the idea that God blesses marriage with the gift of children. Um, green is a color of growth, as we think of, of all the, the life around us in this world. Um, that's, a, that's a good possibility for that. Verse 17, likely a reference to their marriage, their home, 
being well made. So, again, this is going to be a difficult book to walk through together as a family, but it, it may be uncomfortable at times. But at the same time, it is such a rich and deep book that points us to Christ as his bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Sorry, I can say that clearly. We don't use that bridegroom term much anymore. So Christ is our groom, and the church is his bride, and this book is going to pick up on that so frequently. Uh, so it's good in that regard. It's scripture, so it's good anyway. But we will continue tomorrow with more of God's word.